Today on an all new Observations, we are discussing the difference between a film and a movie, a distinction that none other than Steven Spielberg, possibly the greatest director of all time, makes for all of us. He tells us the difference between a film and a movie and why he wanted to make more of one than the other. That's the film portion of today's show. On the comic book portion, we talk about bringing the thunder. We are bringing it. No, not Thor. Not Thor. I am talking about the agents of thunder, the thunder agents, the work of Wally Wood, George Perez, Dave Cockrum, and so many more. You're going to learn all about Dynamo, No Man, Menthor, Lightning, Iron Maiden, more than a metal group. Yes, Iron Maiden begins in the thunder agents. You're going to learn about all of this and so much more on today's all new Observations. Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld and you are listening to another edition of Observations. Observations is a show where we take the deep dive of history, uh, the history of comic books and all that comic books has come to influence as it is doing on a daily basis now, whether it is the the streaming shows like The Boys or Invincible, even, even, even a show like The Walking Dead, obviously does not exist without comic books. All of these huge $200 million movies, Thor, Doctor Strange, The Batman, the, the, the stuff that's coming out w- with great regularity at your cinema derives its, its, its source material from these wonderful comic books that I am absolutely 100% obsessed with, uh, been devoted to my entire life, consumed. Uh, I, I mean, the amount of comic book calories that I have consumed uh, is, is, is unfathomable, but I am obsessed with comics, with these comic books, these that are held together with two staples still to this day folded, you know, together and, 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 and held by two staples that, that give you generally a 32 page comic book and, and, and anywhere from 22 to 25 pages of amazing adventure, uh, words, over pictures, and those pictures are the stuff of legends. They have given us incredible worlds from the Fantastic Four to Thor to Spider-Man to the Avengers to the X-Men to Jack Kirby's New Gods, the Fourth World, Mr. Miracle, Justice League, uh, Batman, Flash, you know, the birth of Image Comics, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary right now, uh, this this entire year. That is my, like bedrock comic books. That's where I get all of my juice from. Uh, you know, I, I, I hang out with a bunch of guys who are in my age group, late forties, early fifties. And I was telling my wife that I think all of us are quite bored after a recent barbecue. And my wife, it wasn't just my wife. It was two other friends who are a little younger than, than us. And, uh, we were all getting ice cream the other night. And he said, you should get them into comic books. It was a little tongue in cheek. And I said, oh, no, 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 their comic books are wine. They are cons- con- connoisseurs of fine liquor. And, and, and they, they, they literally pass around these wine bottles and whiskey bottles and bourbon bottles and scotch bottles and gin bottles. And they rub them and touch them and, and just fondle them the way we, I, do my comic books. So <laughs> one man's 
wine is another man's comic book and one man's comic book is another man's wine, I assure you this. We all kind of go to our certain, you know, comfort places that we that, that, that we grew up with and that we love or maybe something new that we've grown into. And uh, for me, it's always going to be comic books. Comic books is that special, uh, special place. And unlike all of that liquor, uh, comic books is the launch pad for now a new generation of, of, of fans worldwide that are regularly consuming this, whether as we're finding out in recent, in this, this time that we're in right now, this, this summer of 2022, we are finding out whether the product is even maybe, uh, as elevated as it used to be, they are still consuming it at an alarming an alarmingly successful rate, not, not alarmingly, an impressively successful rate. Because guys, when you look at some of these movies and it's like, oh man, this superhero film is going to not make a billion dollars. It's going to stop at $900 million. Do you have any idea how many people it takes to buy enough tickets to get you to $900 million? It's incredible. Uh, $750, any of these numbers, they are absolutely beyond, uh, really, you know, comprehension in, in regards to that, that we are in a post, uh, I'd say post extreme pandemic situation. Cause you're going to, you know, every morning now wake up and, 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 and whether it's the news or in print or on your, you know, social media, there are people who are going to stress to you that we are in no way, shape or form out of this pandemic, which my personal opinion is we never will be. It's now part of what we live with. It is part of, uh, you know, the severe flu and the colds. It's, it's just part of the world that we live in. And, 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 and I'm thankful that we have ways and remedies and means to which to mitigate all of it. Uh, and that is a, a really strange place to be given that I probably know an equal amount of vaccinated people as I do unvaccinated people, but we're not going to talk about uh, the pandemic here. The bottom line is the filmmaking benchmarks, uh, the, the, the film going success rates that we are seeing are astronomical considering that there is a huge portion of the audience that is refusing to go back. I read about them. You do too. You see them on your Twitter and your Facebook and your Instagram on your TikTok. They are telling you, I'm not going back. This isn't safe. I'm not going back. And I am broadcasting to you a week before the 2022 San Diego Comic-Con roars back into town. We'll have more on that uh, later in the show because that's a big deal. There has not been a proper San Diego Comic-Con, a summer show, the likes of which uh, is available to all people and has the cooperation of the entire industry. There has not been a version of this since 2019. There was a some sort of winter edition before, like between Thanksgiving and December of 2021, but nobody counts that as anything more than kind of an experiment. This is the entire haul back. We've got publishers, we've got artist alleys, the hotels are, are, are booked. Um, there are experiences, there are what they call activations all ready to go. So, so this is getting, you know, ready to be put forth as the state that I live in California is, is, is really going to be shortly afterwards entering a must, uh, back to a mandate in LA County, at least to wear masks. And with Comic-Con, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll expand on this a little later. I have read so many of my fellow comic book professionals and entertainment professionals who are refusing to go because of the resurgence of the COVID virus. So we're not out of this 
in so many people's heads. You and I, I'm much more comfortable with it as I, as I come to you. It has been two and a half, maybe two and three quarters years. I have never uh, had COVID. I have not been sick, thank God, uh, in, in a COVID sense. Uh, mild flu, you know, upset stomach, but I have not had the COVID virus, which means now at the end of today's show, I will get it. That's just how things work. But so, so I'm, I'm, you know, I look at it from a different perspective. Uh, all three of my kids have had it. We, uh, we've quarantined them. My daughter had it consecutive Christmases. So, so again, we have dealt with this. We have dealt with the isolation that comes with it. What does this all have to do with entertainment? Again, San Diego is going to have a hundred thousand plus people. And there are some people who are like, that's too much for me. I don't trust it. I'm not going. Same goes with our movie going experiences. There are people who I am. I read just this morning that, well, I'm not going to see any of this until they stream. So they are waiting for, let's say Thor, or they're still waiting on Top Gun Maverick to make it to a streaming platform with which they will then interact with it in that capacity, which is all well, all good, all fine. And I am going to spend a considerable amount of time in the beginning of this episode today talking about kind of the shift that I see coming in the cinematic storytelling and cinematic entertainment space. I I felt it when I was uh, leaving the theater in Las Vegas when I was fortunate enough to see the absolute world premiere in front of 3,000 plus uh, theater owners at CinemaCon, which is thrown for theater owners, whether you're AMC, whether you're Regal, uh, you know, Edwards, I guess that's the same Edwards, Edwards and Regal are the same. Some of these, uh, uh, Cinemark has theaters near, nearby here. And, and, and they all show up mom and pop to the big corporations and they show up in, in mass to see what the theaters are going to be presenting to them. Paramount went last and, and by going last for one of the big major studios, they decided that they would flex and show us all Top Gun, I got a flight overnight from Vegas. I was welcomed in by Paramount. They were really kind to me. A lot of my friends who made the original Deadpool are now all over at Paramount. I'd say three of the biggest executives who were involved in greenlighting Deadpool 1 and 2 are now over at Paramount, so I'm very thankful that I have friends in in high places, and I also have uh, friends in the comic book uh, blogger sphere who made connections, who helped get me to that amazing screening back in April and to them, I, I say to all of them, thank you. And uh, I was able to talk to some of the executives as we were walking out of the Top Gun uh, premiere. And I remember, I, remember I, I, I not only tweeted immediately, but I texted my family and I told my friends who were now at Paramount from Fox, I said, you have no idea the hit that you have on your hands. I, I am stunned. And I, I made bold proclamations uh, to friends and family. I said, this movie's going to make a billion dollars. It's going to be the number one movie of the summer. I just I just felt it as I sat in my chair uh, at, at, at CinemaCon. And if you go Liefeld, you know, bring the receipts. Okay, well, uh, guys from Collider, guys from IMDb, uh, guys from, from uh, uh, you know, Rotten Tomatoes were there, guys... Uh, all, all sorts of different website guys. We all bumped into each other as we were exiting and we were all proclaiming basically kind of the same. Oh my gosh, we can't believe this. The excitement was palatable. The thing that I could feel was that Top Gun was different because for all, for all the obvious reasons, there was no CGI monsters. There was no dragon to slay. There was no ring of power to claim. There were no capes. There were no superpowers. 
Uh, there were no webs being spun. It was uh, just a straightforward kind of mission movie returning, obviously, an adored screen icon, uh, not only in Tom Cruise himself, but his character Maverick. Again, Top Gun, we, we covered in our 1986 capsule you know, uh, series how Top Gun was the number one movie of 1986. And here it is in 2022, rewriting the history books and connecting people. But I, what I saw in that movie was a, a shift. It was a shift. It was a shift that my 22-year-old, my 20-year-old, my uh, 19, 18-year-old, excuse me, still only 18, I'm, I'm aging her up, that, that they would all feel, my, that my wife would feel. I could tell my, my father-in-law. I just knew this was going to be a, a reconnection with a style of movie that has not been seen in a very, very, very long time. At least a style of successful movie that we have not seen in a very, very long time. There are giant crowd-pleasing, let's say, military movies uh, Lone Survivor, uh, uh, with, with Mark Wahlberg, I, I think from 2013, you know, uh, springs to mind, uh, the, 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 the Clint Eastwood directed, uh, it was an American sniper. I mean, with, with, uh, I mean th- th- that, that movie was another giant mega watt, like made tons of money. I think that's 2014. And, uh, and yet, and the, and that is a style of movie, just a straightforward, uh, you know, uh, Zero Dark Thirty, another kind of these these military themed movies, and 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 they were they played the packed houses, but it was a time before the superheroes took over, and the, and the, and the time before the superhero warfare began, and and it be, be began, and and when I say superhero warfare, I mean between the studios, between Disney and Warner Brothers, and everybody in between, as they have tried to catch each other's lightning in each other's bottle. Marvel successfully took the lightning. That Warner Brothers had with those Christopher Nolan films, and we have um, gone over it ad nauseum here. Uh, the 2012 uh, kind of time capsule year that we did here earlier in the summer covers how Marvel took that from Warner's when Avengers uh, went super size and and exceeded everyone's imaginations on the largest possible scale and hit that billion dollar mark that none of the Marvel movies had really even, you know, danced with, I mean, plus a billion, over a billion, um, especially domestically, just, just, just these, these $670 million grosses were like nothing anyone had seen 10 years ago. Remember I'm sitting here right now talking to you, even though it doesn't feel like it was 10 years ago, it was a full decade ago. If you were 20, you were 10. Now again, you're, you're like my son, my son was, was 11 when Avengers came out because he wouldn't turn 12 for a few more weeks. But these movies are 10 years in the rearview mirror, and yet the last decade has been dominated by them. Whether it was the next year's follow-up with Man of Steel, which then became, which then became, uh, you know, Batman and Superman, which then became, you know, Justice League, which then became, uh, you know, Wonder Woman, which then became, uh, uh, you know, this this new reboot of of Batman with 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 Robert Pattinson. I mean, DC has has been up there taking their swings. They're going to take another one with Black Adam, featuring characters I've shared with you, has never carried his own successful comic book series, a character and a movie franchise that I think is going to do very well, but it exists solely because the character reflects the actor. It is the ultimate flex. It is the ultimate flex of The Rock's career to this point, the ultimate flex of Dwayne Johnson's considerable charisma and ability to convince studios and bend them to his will, because that's what he did with this. And, and I do not say this in a skeptical way. I'm just saying this in a very much, I, it's going to do very well. Does it break through that at, to that other level above very well? That remains to be seen. But the numbers have shown up 
for Maverick in a way that even I didn't see with all of my shared, you know, uh, uh, kind of positive outlook, energy, enthusiasm. This movie has brought all manner of people back to theaters again in the swell of a pandemic during a time that people still are openly uh, on social media saying they don't want to go back. They don't, they, they will not go back. They're not comfortable. And uh, people are coming back in droves to see Top Gun Maverick, a very straightforward movie about military superiority, a military mission uh, to take out an enemy base and the training of a young group of pilots at the hand of a seemingly washed up old man pilot. And again, that's a theory that you're seeing a lot, not a theory, a, a theme that you're seeing a lot this summer, whether it's Jeff Bridges in The Old Man whether it's uh, kind of the elder statesman role that Costner strikes so well in Yellowstone or with, with the, you know, Maverick character who seemingly has everyone, not just the young pilots, the people above him, the people in the middle, the people who, 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 who are in, in you know, in, in having have romantic relationships with him as Jennifer Connelly is and, and, and his superiors, his students and his love interest are all kind of questioning, are you over the hill? What can you do? Are you really washed up? Um, and, and his one buddy, Iceman, who reassures him, we need you. We need you exactly as you are right now and, 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 and need what you have to give. And, and along the way, we find Maverick discover that he is prepared to give to everybody exactly what they need in order for the mission to succeed. And even more importantly, for the film to be a success, because there is a double entendre on top of this movie, given that Tom Cruise is saying to you, am I too old to be your big movie star? Um, am I too old? to make that connection with you again. And then of course, no, I'm not. I am the exact guy to bring back this enthusiasm and to reignite your passion for cinema. Once again, no capes, no magic swords, no magic rings, no dragons, no magic wands, no school for wizards. It is a very basic men on a mission movie, but it operates on character. It's very simple also. You know, when you think about Maverick and the fact that it only goes to just a few locations, it stays heavily in Southern California, um, Central California, Southern California, uh, you know, b b between the naval base and, and, and his, his different, uh, you know, fr from the beginning to, to the kind of the early in the first act to the end of the first act, tr getting him back, uh, you know, to Top Gun. And then it really kind of stays in this entire area, whether it's the bar, the beach, you know, or, or, or the actual academy, the, 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 the air base, then it takes you to the aircraft carrier, then it puts you in the mission and then the movie's over. It's very contained. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Uh, they lay out the mission. I mean, the minute Maverick shows up, boom, here's the mission. Let's go. Here's the candidates. Do you have a problem? Can you do this? And from there we have the struggle and we have a guy who is trying to find himself, but it is not what the audience has been, uh, dining out on in the last, you know, 10 years. When last we left blockbuster filmmaking, it was in the hands of not one, not two, but three different Spider-Man. Tobey Maguire returns, you know, to join, you know, Mr. Mr. Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield gets his final shot at greatness or, or, or a renewed shot. And who knows? Cause we're all on board for another Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movie. But, the, but, but when last we left, numbers like this, performances like this, it was multidimensional. It was people falling through the clouds. It was timelines converging. 
It was portals opening up. I mean, portals, portals, and more portals. And we we were then fed a steady diet of portals, uh, which kind of we was getting tickled during the Loki phase of uh, of the Disney Plus launch and 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 the 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 you know time management, time lords, time portals, and then we crashed directly into it with blockbuster success, the biggest Spider-Man movie of all time with 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 uh, No Way Home. And then it got revisited with Doctor Strange. And, you know, big magic time-shifting multiverse portals were all the rage. And then a guy in his jet and his young recruits took over the box office. Uh, again, a, a, a legitimately uh, beautiful cast. There is, I, I, I joked with my wife, even the people who are supposed to be kind of just decently attractive are all attractive. Every single person in Top Gun Maverick is easy on the eyes. They're fun. Um, and you find a way to root for them. I say even more than maybe you did in the original Top Gun because I really did not like Iceman in the original Top Gun. And 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 yet here I love Glenn Powell and Hangman and they find that balance of he's not as polarizing a figure as perhaps uh, Iceman was who was a much harder rival for Maverick at the time. But it plays on nostalgia. Absolutely, there is nostalgia in play. I had a family member proclaimed to me a month before the movie came out that I was crazy, that this movie would not connect. I am a relic of a, of a bygone era. I am holding on. And now we see that maybe there are a lot of bygone um, uh, relics from bygone Eric's holding on just like me. Or maybe the movie is just so ridiculously entertaining and in fact a departure from having to know 1,000 Easter eggs and connecting uh, multiple plot lines and, you know, having to sit down in the theater, having giving your refresher on one of these happy YouTubers who are happy to tell you everything you saw and how you should have interpreted and seen it. <laughs> Sorry. <I'm, laughs> again, you know, you kind of find out along the way what kind of show you are. And I, and I learned early on, that's, that's just not the show I am. But so what am I trying to say here? So, so I, I get, I get on vacation. Some of you guys are aware, you know, now that, now that these are booted back up, this is going to load on the different, you know, podcast platforms, whether it's Spotify or Apple, it's going to load immediately after whatever last episode was. And there really won't be that three week gap. There won't be that 21 days off that, that, that I, I shared with you guys. I just needed to take a break and, 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 uh, and, and sharpen my focus and kind of, and kind of, kind of just, just, just get, get, get some, get some distance. And, th and then I could re-engage and, and bring this podcast back to life. And, and during that time I was on vacation with my family. And again, I give really, uh, Tremendous respect to my to my three kids. Case in point, I would have never have watched uh, Stranger Things six years ago, as they recently cele cele celebrated the six year anniversary of Netflix broadcasting Stranger Things for the first time last week. I only tuned into that very first episode because of my daughter, who was twelve, who was freaking out. She had seen the first episode. She goes, have you guys seen Stranger Things? Oh my gosh. She'd watched it upstairs on her laptop. She wanted to share it with the rest of us. She wanted to watch it on the big screen. We have two big TVs and, and she wanted to have them be communal experiences with us. I took that flyer. I was like, let's do it. And within the first five minutes, like you had these four kids, they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Boom. In the eighties. I relate to that. I did that. They are riding their, you know, their, 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 their bikes back to their house after hours, after the lights have gone down during the summer, which is completely something that I relate to. And they're talking about the X-Men, the Burn Claremont X-Men. They're, they're referencing Hellfire Club and Dark Phoenix. 
and an and an absolute issue of the X-Men that like they're betting between each other as they race at home. I mean, at that point, I'm fully engaged. I'm on board. Oh my gosh, this has superheroes. This has super spies, military. It's got it's got uh, cops, you know, who are wrestling with their own personal demons. It's got Winona Ryder, who my kids could not possibly know who that is. But of course, I'm going to know. So we as a family were then, based on my daughter's enthusiasm for strange thing, Stranger Things, drawn in. And now I am as big a fan as... as as possible and and have been since that you know day after the show premiered i remember we wanted to finish the whole series before we left as a family for san diego a few days from that premiere which which it had dropped on friday because we didn't want to get spoiled we didn't want to be in the hall and get spoiled so we made sure we binged the entire thing the entire family before we landed in san diego for that year's 2016's san diego comic-con so again, I give my kids a lot of credit. I listen to what they have to say. Uh, again, I got a college graduate, got a great job in the financial sector. He's a smart kid. I listen to him. Um, all my kids are super bright and they teach me so much about so much of what I don't know. So when they are gathered around the breakfast table, everyone has filled their, filled, filled their plates with their with the, the, the buffet and, and their, you know, our, our breakfasts on vacation, uh, which which could possibly be our last family vacation, just because of, uh, uh, you know, just logistics. That's it, just because of logistics. You know, we we the breakfasts that we shared as a family were the 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 most fun. It was, they would run ninety minutes to two hours as we just kind of took our time, shared food, shared thoughts, shared kind of plans for the day, and uh, both of my sons it was very clear that they are exiting their George Lucas phase like their father before them. And like John Favreau, who I've mentioned on this show brought up in the Mandalorian uh, season one round table. And it was like the first time I, after talking about it for years and I've, I've mentioned it here on the show several times. So I'll try and get through it quickly for people who've heard it before, but just enough time for the people who are tuning in for the first time who don't know quite what I'm talking about is I saw Star Wars in the theaters 35 times, 37 times. It's it's one of those two numbers. It was excessive. It was, you know, uh, three times a weekend, every weekend, uh, the, the entirety of the summer of 1977. It became my babysitter. It raised me. I went and saw it with all manner of friends and family. And and then, you know, three years later, because that's, that's how long we had to wait. Imagine that without social media, without, without uh, you know, uh, uh, I- any means with which to kind of carry us as 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 we were carried through those difficult twelve month periods between you know Lord of the Rings one two and three. I mean, imagine three years between movies, gu- guaranteed, in that cliffhanger in Empire. So I go back three years later. No longer am I nine. I am now twelve, and I I get dropped off to see Empire Strikes Back. I saw Empire Strikes Back tops three times in the theater. I remember the opening night. I remember seeing it. Uh, I really enjoyed it, but it didn't have that same magic to me. The magic had already kind of started to shift. I liked that Empire Strikes Back took a more adult tone. Um, ironically, if you go back and, and historically look, and I believe this is why Return of the Jedi took the tone that it did, Empire Strikes Back, arguably the best made of all the Star Wars films, is the least grossing. The follow-up to the biggest movie of all time is not the best, you know, best-selling version of it. It is, in fact the third of the trilogy behind, and it always has been, Return of the Jedi. It, it, it didn't make them any ground uh, with the 20 years that they appreciated it when they did the special editions, you know, in, in the appreciation of fans' minds and crowning empire. It didn't make a jump. It's still ranked in the same way that it was originally. 
1977's Star Wars is number one. 1983's Return of the Jedi is number two. And 1980's Empire Strikes Back ranked number three. Now, is it partially because it was kind of the feel-bad movie of all time? I mean, Han is encapsulated in, you know, in, in carbon. Luke's hand has been cut off. His father is the Dark Lord of the universe, the Dark Sith Lord. Um, he has a, a lineage that is terrifying. I mean, they are shattered. They are broken up. It is a fantastic cliffhanger. It is not the feel-good, let's put the medals on, let's walk down you know, the aisle, let's have the princess pin our medals on us, and, and, and C-3PO and R2-D2 are shiny, they're alive, they're in, they're in great condition. I mean, Chewbacca roaring, that end of Star Wars is just a huge uplifting moment. I still, I still kind of get moved, possibly, possibly to tears. No, you can't watch with me. No, you cannot see if my tear ducts swell up while I'm watching it. The, the, if you're thinking that the answer is closer to yes, you would be closer to that answer for sure. But when Return of the Jedi came out and uh, some of the stuff that had leaked out to the science fiction magazine, some of which I've shared with you guys here in, 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 in regards to these Starlog magazines that I used to just collect every month and, and try and parse over every bit of gossip and innuendo and, and, and whatever you know, uh, secrets that they were able to get out. And I, and I there's a dedicated, uh, star Wars episode that I did earlier in this year about, you know, what car, what all of the different rumors and all the different things that were, were planned for empire based on all the rumors that had, you know, over three years had, had come out between the success of star Wars and the impending arrival of empire strikes back. So, you know, I, I, I had been checking star log and all the sci-fi, you know, magazines again, no internet, no, no specialty shows that I can, you know, watch no dedicated sci-fi channels. And they had alluded to the fact that they were going to go to Chewbacca's planet and there was going to be Wookiees and the Wookiees were the factor that was going to make the difference in the third act of Return of the Jedi. So I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, the, the, the brief glimpse that I had gotten from them of the Wookiee planet of Chewbacca's people from the, um, Star Wars, Christmas holiday special, which yes, I saw in live time, live in, 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 you know, real time. And again, I'll always celebrate it for that kick-ass Boba Fett animated cartoon where, where he is introduced and, and it's like only whatever, eight, nine minutes, but man, it was it a blast to watch. And again, we, I don't even think our color TV was on the fritz and it was like half color. I, I, I pretty much saw the holiday special in, in partial tones of black and white, but, but I wanted, I wanted tall tree houses I wanted my Wookiees. I wanted all of that. And uh, when I got the Ewoks, when I got teddy bears at 15 years old, I just was like, oh, I'm not into this. And, and the end of Return of the Jedi, to me, read as kind of a retread of Empire where it's got Luke and Vader in a lightsaber battle, a lightsaber duel again, and now we have another Death Star. The creation of a second Death Star was always a problem for me as a kid as well. I just felt like it lacked like this ambition and imagination that I had come to expect from George and from Star Wars. Especially after that amazing Hoth sequence, Dagobah, Bespin Cloud City. I just felt like, wait, we're doing it. The Empire's big plan is to make another Death Star. This, these are the thoughts that I had when I was 15 years, 15 years ago. I mean, <laughs> when I was 15 years old. Good God. You can tell I've been away from this mic for a while. Bear with me. So, by the time Return of the Jedi came out and the Ewoks came out, to say that I wasn't a tremendous fan is an understatement. And John Favreau on the Mandalorian Roundtable, which is on Disney Plus, when he ex it says this to the other guys, and he and he, and he says, "Look, 
uh, and, and, and ladies at the table, the, the, uh, all of the, uh, the directors that he had gathered together, he says to them, you know, I just, I wasn't there. I wasn't in that headspace anymore. And what he really was pursuing, what he really wanted in the worst possible way was, you know, now his taste ran towards Ridley Scott, towards James Cameron, towards, uh, you know, towards Paul Verhoeven. This is where everything was shifting, where it was going. I mean, 1979 is, is alien. And if you don't think that that got tons of play on cable television, the minute it transferred over to HBO and to Showtime and kids like us watch that again and again and again. And now we're discovering like the creepy little, you know, uh, you know, Roger Corman sci-fi movies on cable. And we're watching the John Carpenter films. And, and again, so, so even though Terminator was still a year away, it's, it's again, we were building towards that more adult themes, more adult stuff. Now you're like, well, there's not adult themes in Top Gun. No, there's not, but there's also not, you know, kiddie stuff. It's, it's, um, you can say, well, there's a couple cheesy parts in it. Yeah, but it's, it's really a very impressive, uh, and, and part of why I believe it's very successful is how expensive, uh, the, the scale of these aerial battles and all of this, these ships, we spend so much time in the air with these characters. It's great, but the movie is a departure for sure, for certain of the kind of, uh, serialized entertainment that we've been getting. And I believe that this is the beginning of a shift and it's not really, uh, something you can put back in the bottle. A 10 year old becomes a 20 year old, a 12 year old becomes a 22 year old. And with that becomes more adult tastes in everything, in what they read, what they listen to, uh, especially what they watch and what they consume with their eyes and storytelling. You don't want to go back. You want to keep moving forward and pushing it. And so I, I truly believe that, that whether it's Marvel or DC moving forward, um, the, 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 their challenge will be what do they do with their audience? Is Disney Plus going to be where you meet the kids head on because it's more made for kids? Or are the movies going to stay at a certain range where, like George Lucas, because he made a decision and he'll, he'll talk to you about Return of the Jedi, he could not gamble on the Rob Liefelds and the John Favreau's growing old and adoring Star Wars. He needed kids. And you know that he pivoted shortly after if you you know, check out what happened. The Ewoks got two giant ABC Sunday night movies that were very big budgets for the day that were big event. Trust me. I was there. The, the, the ads, the, the promotions, the interviews, I mean, the big push to get people and those got big numbers Two made for TV, two hour Ewok movies that surrounded them with different kind of human, uh, characters. One of them, uh, you know, is, 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 uh, Wilfred, uh, the, the guy from Cocoon, and and I mean, like they they put some 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 new talent and some recognizable faces uh, because it is it was the do, the the, do, the domain of of television. But again, the Ewoks became a really uh, successful brand that Lucas prepared for us to consume beyond Return of the Jedi. They got their own Saturday morning cartoon show. Um, it, it became and and then the droids C three PO and R two D two became a Saturday morning cartoon show again skewing much more towards the kids and fans like myself whether it was the novels or marvel's very excellent star wars series was the best that we were going to get in terms of getting more mature versions of that so my just big my big thought my food for thought because that's all this is this is just taking trends that that i feel within myself that i see reflected in my 20 something children and their desire to now seek out stuff uh beyond 
the comic book stuff that they held so dear. Perhaps as uh, there's an editor that I, I, I cannot stand. I, I've got an entire podcast on him. His name is Mike Carlin. Uh, he was terribly uh, abusive to me during my time doing Hawk and Dove. Uh, what would what would get him written up in today's society? The 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 abusive speech, the yelling, the the screaming, the threats. Um, the one really smart thing he ever said to me was when a comic book is canceled, just like when a TV show is canceled, that is someone's favorite thing that just was, was canceled. And it could be that canceled comic or that canceled episode that walks them away from television, walks them away from comics. And I remember, I know I felt some of that. And there is a truth in it that, that a canceled edition of something Maybe where someone puts it down in parts ways. And in, and in another way, the end of sagas is where people kind of seem to put a bow on things, tie it up, say, I gave that 10 years and I'm done. I have great memories of that. I don't need to go any further with it. And sometimes what helps that aspect, that kind of sense of closure is when what's coming afterwards is an avalanche. And I've talked about how the mid eighties is not my favorite time for Marvel. They, they started spinning everything off. They had a um, maybe their largest output, but it wasn't, you know, to me, it's when things tilted. What made Marvel was that 90% of their line was excellent. And now when 50% of their line is comp comprised of stuff that I'm not interested in, you know, you are the majority of what you do. You want desperately as a publisher, as a studio, you want people to only look at your top, you know, uh, celebrated, uh, successful items. And, and, and yet, you know, if you're a network, if, if all you've got is, is Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, but you still have to program Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you're failing, you know, there's five nights that aren't working against those two nights that are. Again, it's a balance. I've been there as a publisher. I, I, I have uh, been there as, as, as someone who is running an office. And again, I've watched my friends at studios and I've watched as a fan with different studios and different production arms. And so perhaps there is way too much uh, superheroes, period, because, again, they are everywhere. But the success of the boys, very R-rated, very mature material, much like the Deadpool films that came before them, which I celebrated the fact that they're R-rated, uh, they have touched a nerve. The boys has touched a nerve because it is mature, because it is. It, I think that is where a majority of Marvel fans since Endgame and Infinity War have pivoted to because the gore is more excessive, the relationships are more adult, there is language, there is sexual content, um, but yeah, the, the violence is is much more R-rated. It's not a hand sliced off with no blood splatter. I mean, even Hugh Jackman would, would laugh in the early X-Men movies, in, in interviews, when he talk about how he would, um, you know, stick his six blades into someone's chest and pull them out and there's no blood. <laughs> Because yet it didn't get that R rating. If they had that R rating, there would be buckets of blood spewing out of the chest that he, you know, impales with those blades. And then as he pulls them out, there would be juicy excess of, of, of you know, squib blood as he pulls them out and, you know, practically shakes them free of the blood uh, onto the floor and the, and the surrounding walls. But again, in PG-13, that's not going to happen. You're going to have to find that with a more mature R rating. So it's not just with Top Gun. But Top Gun is a departure. It is something different. The Mission Impossible movies are coming out in successive summers. And so they get to capitalize on the Top Gun success just by virtue of having the world's biggest movie star in them. 
and he is working in the same capacity as a producer. And Ethan Hunt is arguably just as as popular as Pete Maverick. And in successive summers, with Christopher McQuarrie and, and, and Paramount's giant commitment in terms of budget and scope and scale, uh, and, and McQuarrie behind the lens, working again with Tom Cruise, and McQuarrie's imprimatur, his fingerprints are all over Top Gun. But but this is the... Uh, this is going to be the test because I believe these these Mission Impossible movies, which again, getting to almost eight hundred million dollars on on his his last, you know, on, on Fallout, that was the biggest Tom Cruise movie, biggest Mission Impossible film prior to Maverick. That's a lot of people who had to buy a ticket to get there. Anytime, I mean, you get into these seven, six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred million dollars. That's so many people to buy those tickets. So many eyeballs. So many butts in seats. And, and so, so, you know, I believe the Mission Impossible movies are on track to exceed possibly what Top Gun has done because they travel the globe. They're not as contained. And then you say, well, Liefeld, maybe, maybe what you're saying about Top Gun being simple is part of the, you know, part of the appeal. I think that much of the appeal of Top Gun cannot be lost on the fact that it is Tom, Tom, Tom Cruise taking us wherever we go, whether it's four locations or 10 locations. But what I've seen, what I've heard, uh, the Mission Impossible movies are going to be uh, the new kind of must-see films in the follow-up to Top Gun. It's got Tom, it's got Macquarie, it's got an unbelievable cast and characters that we already love, that we're already accustomed to, that we're dying to spend more time with. And in that way, Tom Cruise is the new Marvel brand. And Paramount has him. And... uh, you know, again, do I think of those movies as kids' films? I don't. I don't also think of Maverick as a kid's film. Uh, but it, it brought tons of adults back. It was very straightforward. And it didn't have many of the tropes that we have associated with uh, the, the ingredients that are necessary to hit those blockbuster billion-dollar benchmarks. So there is much to think about, much food for thought going forward. My... Uh, my bet is that there are millions of Luke Liefeld and Chase Liefelds, 20 and 22 years old, looking for more mature content. They already have in the last two summers through manga and anime, which they consume. Uh, I, I up, Going up and down the stairs, I'll, I'll pass through the rooms and I will see, you know, what's playing. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, Attack on Titan, extremely R-rated, love it. You know, One Punch Man, ditto on that. Um, you know, uh, My Hero Academia. Again, the anime and the dominion of anime and manga, the homegrown stuff has always been very mature, very violent, very uh, just very much more uh, graphic. And and I see a new age migrating to that, and it's where they're going to be met in the superhero space that's going to determine the future of the superhero space. And I think you can get a glimpse of that, again, from the boys. The last thing I'm going to say, Something really interesting. I went and saw an excellent movie that I hope that you guys get and see in theaters before it is um, only on Netflix. I don't know if it's in theaters for more than a week, but I went and saw the Russo Brothers uh, production, their their director, uh, the, their directorial smash, The Gray Man, which has The Gray Man, which has Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans and Anna Diarmas and Billy Bob Thornton and Rajon Page. It, it is fantastic. It is giant. It is explosive. It definitely dips its toe successfully, I might add, into the Mission Impossible realm. It is globe hopping. It is all over the place. Um, it, it is, uh, 
It has got big, giant set pieces. I countered like nine giant set pieces, again, in a world of guns and ammo and fast cars. And it is um, not a dominion of superpowers, of magic wands, dragons, all those tropes that I've already mentioned. And I don't think the Russos ever get to get there. They never get Chris Evans playing against type as a supervillain, an anti-Captain America, if you will. Um, and boy, does he show his guns off. His arms are as big in this movie as they ever were, as they ever were in, in, uh, in, in, in any of the Captain America films. He, <laughs> as so many of these actors did, do they get yoked up before that shot? They get yoked up. I mean, you've seen the behind the scenes shot of the beach scene of the beach football offense, defense game in Top Gun Maverick. I mean, these guys had dumbbells right there on their chairs. I mean, they were getting yoked up, sprayed, oiled up before those, those, cause they know those shots are going to live forever and they want those abs and those torn up pectorals they want those to live in infamy in your brain um for guys girls men women child everybody and chris evans oh my gosh the guns that he is packing those two biceps are as big as anything he's ever shown in captain america but ryan gosling continues to be like the superstar that we just kind of don't pay enough attention to as 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 uh Sierra Six, and you'll understand if you watch it, but most people just call him Six, but the gray men consists of many gray men in this movie. The action is enormous. It's fantastic. The two of them play off each other. I don't think the Russos get to this place without the collateral uh, that the Marvel movies pro- provided them. And it is much the same as, as I go back to my 1970s kind of youth, and as I've mentioned so often that the birth of the director as superstar, whether it was Francis Ford Coppola, Billy Friedkin, who directed uh, 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 The the Exorcist, um, Steven Spielberg, you know, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese. This is the birth of the director of the superstar. They've made a show out of it. I cannot believe how well the offer is doing on Paramount Plus. It tells the behind the scenes story of The Godfather. You should check it out. And and so much of that, because trust me, I have read many, 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 many books along these about this time period and about that specific production. And and you're going to find yourself saying, did this really happen? You will find that for the most part, these things did really happen. But the, 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 the notion that, uh, you know, Francis Ford Coppola took the Godfather to pay some bills. Okay. And, and to pay some debts. And, uh, did you know, I mean, you look and, and you see that Godfather, obviously based on a giant worldwide bestseller, Billy Friedkin, uh, took the job of directing The Exorcist because Francis directed The Godfather. He was very competitive with him. And uh, he had figured that since he made a movie on a bestseller that really nobody wanted to touch because it was so dark and so, you know, people didn't really know how to how to carve it up and, and put it on film and, the, and, and, the, and so many people had passed. And, and Francis was in the position to say yes, but he had done it and he had obviously gotten not only huge box office, which mattered, but huge acclaim, which mattered. Well, The Exorcist was being uh, denied by all manner of directors. They, they, they thought it was a very disturbing subject matter. But again, The Exorcist was a, the Exorcist was a bestseller. And, uh, and Billy Friedkin, who had also directed The French Connection, came forward and said, I'll do it. And, and in Easy Riders, Raging Bulls con- con- confirms that he did The Exorcist because Francis Ford Coppola did The Godfather. Again, these are big blockbuster movies based on bestsellers. Steven Spielberg follows that up and agrees in 1974 to make a movie based on the bestseller of Jaws. What's the connective tissue here? Godfather, Jaws, and uh, The Exorcist 
are all bestsellers. They're all worldwide global best-selling novels at the time that, that really caught the zeitgeist and, and the attention of the public and were just, uh, for a public that was waiting now, especially after The Godfather, to get these film adaptations. And again, they're IP. What are those three bestsellers if they're not giant intellectual properties? Best-selling books that Paramount secured, Warner Brothers even offered Paramount a million, a million dollars before they even wrote a screenplay to, to get it back. They wanted it. They felt, we could have this. We'll give you a million dollars. You optioned it for 15000 We'll give you a million dollars. Paramount wisely held on to it and, and obviously wrote it to a mega, mega, mega successful you know, production. Billy Friedkin does The Exorcist. People are scared. How that? How's that going to do? How's that going to do? Blockbuster. Steven Spielberg, bestseller. Jaws. Peter Bensley's Jaws. Boom. Bestseller. Dominates the summer of 1975. These are the movies that launched these guys' careers. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to read an excerpt from Steven Spielberg himself when he was thinking of backing out of Jaws because he felt like, on, on second thought, he shouldn't follow up his TV movie that was so successful it got released overseas as a theatrical release called Duel where a mysterious truck giant you know 18 wheeler big rig is 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 chasing this this uh this poor driver um that 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 went on to be a real buzz uh buzz movie again getting a theatrical release overseas internationally so universal had offered him and these producers had offered him jaws but along the way and he admits i didn't know who i was i wanted to make movies that left a mark not just at the box office, but on people's consciousness. I am reading you a quote from Steven Spielberg from Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, written by uh, Peter Biskind, who used to be the uh, managing editor, executive editor of Premier Magazine, which was hands down the best magazine about movies and cinema ever. I mourned its passing when it, 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 it died. Uh, this book is fantastic. Steven Spielberg, his own words, I didn't know who I was. I wanted to make movies that left a mark. Not just at the box office, but on people's consciousness. I wanted to be Antoni, Bob Rafelson, Hal Ashby, Martin Scorsese. I wanted to be everybody but myself. Who wants to be known as a shark and truck director? There are two categories. Films and movies. Two categories. Films and movies. That he shared with his producer who, who he was reluctant to move forward with. Her name was Helen Gurley Brown. Uh, I'm sorry. It was Richard Zanuck, uh, excuse me, Richard Zanuck, and uh, he he says uh, he says to to, to Zanuck, and uh, Zanuck said, "Look, this is a big, big movie, and this movie will help you make all the films that you want. Movies and films. A film is something, according to Steven Spielberg, that leaves not just box office success, but 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 it dwells in your consciousness. Okay." I, what, what comes to mind, you know, are are uh, are all manner of films. It's obviously, the one that broke through the biggest at the time, you know, was was The Godfather. But Stephen was questioning, you know, I, I'm going to be directing a mechanical shark stalking people based on a bestseller. It, it 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 felt like, you know, maybe he was compromising. But he even admits he didn't know who he wanted to be. And this, for this producer to say, "Look, make this. This is a big movie, and this." will make help you make all the films, all the films that you want. I I, I was like, wow, there it is. The, the the discernment from 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 one of the greatest film directors of all space and time. A a discerning package of what's a film and what's a movie. 
And I'm I'm telling you, do I believe the gray man is the godfather? No. It's 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 in many ways it's also a movie, but the Russos can now write their own check for the next decade based on their success with Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, Endgame. They can make movies about super spies. They can make their movie uh, about Tom Holland uh, that they did a few years back during the during the the pandemic. The last couple things they've done is is is, is streaming, but this one is mega expensive. It looks as expensive as any of the Mission Impossible films. It, all the money is on screen. Giant action set pieces. <clears throat> a lot of guys do one for them and one for uh, another. I'll, I'll end with Scott. Scott Derrickson is actually the best vision of this. Coming from his horror film background, he was tapped to horror film thriller background. Scott Derrickson went to a local college here in Southern California, a, a Christian college, a, a university named Biola. He graduated. He assists. He has since distanced himself. That doesn't color who he is. But they had a very, um, a, a very big uh, 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 film film component to their school that they had added, and they had really, uh, um, that they had uh, that they had had bolstered. And and look, Daniel, uh, uh, Dustin Daniel. I don't. I don't want to say his word. He he directed Shang Chi. I actually met him at one of the Biola. Uh, Symposiums that they that they throw and and they threw them on the on the on the shot on the Fox lot. They threw these. Uh, Biola had had like film compo- uh, compo- uh, symposium days. <laughs> these big uh, weekends of guest speakers. And uh, I met Destin Daniel Cretton at uh, at one of the last ones that they threw, and he was there to show one of his latest indie films. And shortly after, he got tapped to do Shang-Chi. So Destin Daniel Cretton uh, is is someone who I made contact with and became friendly with and, again, had ties to Biola University, just like Scott Derrickson. And Scott Derrickson, uh, you know, was tapped to do the directorial work on the very first uh, Doctor Strange, not an easy task. Doctor Strange, I don't, I don't think was was a uh, was just an automatic home run in in, in regards to, uh, to 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 you know taking flight. He uh, he had made a movie called Sinister that had gotten all the buzz, and again, it was one of those micro budgeted, you know, one one uh, certainly by Marvel standards, you know, uh, uh, horror films. And and Feige tapped him to do Doctor Strange. He goes on, he does Doctor Strange. It's a huge success. It's a big success. It, it's, it's, I think, a fantastic, fantastic film. I, I'm a huge Doctor Strange number one film fan. And uh, again, on his IMDb, you'll see Scott Derrickson, Biola, also USC. But but he 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 has ties to this school. Um, and uh, so that, that I, I'm just really like the Duffer brothers. So much of like James Cameron, like Kevin Costner, Orange County is this hotbed of incredible talent. Cal State Fullerton, Fullerton College, Chapman University, Biola, okay. It goes beyond SC and UCLA out here in Southern California. If you actually did a deep dive, I could do that. I can do that soon on all the huge, like just Orange County talents in film. But at the end of the day, Scott Derrickson knocks it out of the park with Doctor Strange more than earns his role as doing Doctor Strange 2. Somewhere along the lines of Doctor Strange 2, and it's never been really clearly put out by anyone, so we can only ascertain, but I have to believe, I have to believe, it's my personal opinion now, this is my personal opinion, that somewhere between Doctor Strange 2, uh, in, in in Scott's mind, being that, wait, now I have to include this stuff with WandaVision, because that's leading 
right into this movie. And then I have to deal with multiverses and portals. And because it's, um, you know, now, uh, be, be coming after Spider-Man because all of this stuff is getting shuffled around on the, on the schedule. Scott Derrickson informed in early 2020 that he would be parting ways. he would be walking away from Dr. Strange too. And, uh, obviously they want, and, and, and Feige holds, you know, all the cards when it comes to Marvel and, and getting quality talent. But Scott was a big deal. Scott walked away. And uh, this summer, we got Scott's option outside of Doctor Strange. He went back to his roots. So let's say he made a film. Then he made a movie. And instead of making another movie, he made another film. That film is The Black Phone. And The Black Phone has gotten all sorts of huge success. And uh, crossed the $100 million mark on, again, a micro-budget in regards to any sort of blockbuster along the lines of a, of, of, of a, of a Dr. Strange, of a Thor, of a No Way Home, of a Batman, Scott went back to his roots on Sinister and has had this giant success. And Coppola speaks often in Easy Riders Raging Bulls. You do one for them and one for yourself. One for them and one for yourself. And a lot of directors used to think like that when it was more... The, the industry was more open to them doing that. Nowadays, it really is. You have to keep making hits. You have to keep making hits. If you step off the hit factory, you put yourself in 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 in, uh, in danger and you may go to movie jail. And so as far as Scott Derrickson is concerned, he goes from Doctor Strange, he goes from Sinister to Doctor Strange, two successes, but then somewhere between Doctor Strange 1 and 2, he falls out because he says he's not on board with maybe everything that they have planned. Maybe it's too much of a, you know, a, of a compromise to what he believed he wanted as the director uh, to deliver on Doctor Strange. Marvel is managing an entire library of these characters, and they also have a, have a very specific direction that they want to take their movies in. Scott sees what they want to do as opposed to what he wants to do. He steps away for whatever reason, and we don't know exactly what that is, but then he goes and he makes the black phone. It's a giant hit, plus $100 million for a micro-budgeted Hollywood, uh, you know, yeah, Hollywood production. I mean, Scott is now you know, uh, completely cemented as a auteur, a successful director, a, a guy who can, who can do studio films and do passion films for himself. But again, Spielberg dif differentiating what's a film, what's a movie. Okay. I would say inception is the kind of movie that Spielberg is talking about. It, it invades your consciousness as well as stirs the box office to all new heights. And, uh, Spielberg would obviously go on to make a movie, Jurassic World, Jurassic Park, number one, and then make a film, Schindler's List. And for the longest time, he did he did a lot of that. You follow Steven's uh, career, and that's exactly what he locked into, and that's exactly what he then started doing with great regularity. But where we're going, uh, and I think my kids, and, and maybe you, are prepared to go, is to more into films. And maybe along the way, we'll get lucky, and we'll find a Top Gun that's a movie that also stirs our consciousness. But films and movies are not, again, from the greatest director of all time, they're not the same thing. You know, a movie exists to drive people into this theater. And today's movies, the what I believe Spielberg would talk about specifically, today's movies are, are, are about, you know, hitting that box office barometer, making that money back and moving on to the next. A film, again, by his own definition, stirs your consciousness. And I believe that today's audience is looking for something more mature and something uh, beyond what they have been feasting on the last 10 years because tastes change. And we, as uh, whether you're partaking of the taste or you are, you know, one of the tastemakers, 
have to stop and 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 reevaluate and 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 take measurement of the moment because maybe what you were going to do yesterday isn't going to be what works today. So thus endeth the lesson in regards to movies and films and where everything's going. And and you know if you can work in a great quote from Steven Spielberg, the arguably the greatest film director of all time. Seriously. I mean, look at that. Look at that list. If you can work in a great quote about movies and films and what differentiates the two of them, then, then, then you're doing okay, especially on your first podcast back in, in, in nearly a month. So to the comic book portion of this show, we go. And one of the things that I have loved so much over the years, as we have been sharing this podcast together is the fact that sometimes, and you guys tell me this, all of you in your in your very generous spirits, you come up to me, you share with me some of the things that you say that you have never, characters you've never heard of before, stories you've never heard of before, situations you've never heard of before. And I'm, I'm always so thrilled. So I, I do understand. I do understand that the... Uh, that there, there's often stuff that old man Liefeld brings to the table that is going to be 100% new to you on, on every level. And that excites me because come on, who doesn't want to learn something new? Cause, cause today, today we are going to be talking about, uh, a, a period, uh, where, 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 where some of the best, the very best, the very brightest the, the most amazing talent of the time of the, of the mighty bronze age where so much of, of what we're living in today, so much of, of what we enjoy today is, is happening because it was born of that period. It was born of that specific period. And, and, and the bronze age gave us huge superstars, all whom went on to inspire my generation, my peer group, whether it's Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Eric Larson, myself, uh, Dale Keown, Mark Teixeira, Wills Portacio, we were all inspired by these Bronze Age greats. They were inspired by the Mount Rushmore guys, by the the, the Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, uh, John Buscema, Neil Adams. I did an episode called My Personal Mount Rushmore. You should listen to it. I think I go deep on all of these stellar talents and why they are carved into my personal mountain and why they belong there. But And, and they th- that list will not change. It's, it's, it's their accomplishments of those, those Mount Rushmore faces on my comic book mountain that they are so severe that, that I just, I can't imagine ever replacing them. Even with some of the, some, some guys who, who maybe whose work I personally like more, it's just, I can, I can recognize that the accomplishments, the achievements, the, uh, the breakthrough, uh, uh, talents of, of, of these significant, you know, alumni of comic books, they belong on that mountain. And, and so they're, 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 they're staying there for all time. They inspired the bronze age guys, the bronze age guys inspired us. And then, you know, I guess we're all still working and there's been other guys who followed us. The, the, the modern guys deserve a real microscope. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, I, I need more time to chew on this and see the paths of some of where some of these modern guys go, but there is no doubt that in the bronze age of comic books, the biggest names among them were George Perez, rest in peace, George. George left us uh, earlier this 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 uh, this year, uh, late spring. Uh, Dave Cockrum of the X Men, George Perez uh, of Crisis on on Infinite Earths, the maxi series that changed everything 
for DC Comics, the Teen Titans, the comic that turned the fortunes of DC Comics around. And, and the Titans had never really been or amounted much in, in regards to sales or commercial appeal. But George Perez went in there the same way that, that the X-Men guys went in there, and they just balled out and created a bestseller, created a new modern classic in, in the new Teen Titans, George Perez, Marv Wolfman. But then it, it really achieving the same amazing feat as Dave Cockrum did when he did Giant Size X-Men number one with Len Wein and Chris Claremont and then went on to do two huge, amazing, acclaimed, best-selling runs on the X-Men, which which cemented it as one of the best-selling comic books of all time, certainly the best-selling comic book of of the Bronze Age. So you got you got George Perez and Dave Cockrum, Keith Giffen. You've, you've heard me talk about the Legion of Superheroes. He is the reason it mattered. He is the reason it, it caught fire. He is the reason uh, at one point DC Comics was doing five Legion spinoffs. The work that Keith Given put in to the Legion of Superheroes is why the Legion of Superheroes became as big and as relevant and as exciting as it did. Okay, don't stop there. Jerry Ordway is a guy who went on to pencil so many of your favorite Superman stories in the 90s. Prior to that, he had been a dynamic penciler and inker, uh, drawing for DC Comics Infinity Inc., uh, which which is where I first saw him, and I couldn't believe like the quality and the beauty of these pencils and the dynamic uh, uh, figures that he drew and the amazing quality of, of, of his ink line. And, and truly, he is, as as much as anybody, an heir to, to, to this franchise that I'm going to talk to you, kind of a spiritual heir in regards to one of his primary influences. So you got Jerry Ordway, All-Star Squadron, Infinity Inc., Superman. He did a stint on, on Fantastic Four. I mean, Jerry was an A-list player. So far, everyone I've given you, George Perez, A-list. Dave Cockrum, A-list. Keith Giffen, A-list. Jerry Ordway, A-list. These are the big top hitters of their time. They came together on a book that I'm going to talk to you that I've never discussed with you today, uh, before today. And it was called Wally Woods. Thunder Agents, and it was published by Deluxe Comics. There is so much to unpack here, but I trust I, I trust that if you come along with this journey to, uh, that I'm about to share with you today, that you will want to partake in all that I am going to share. This Wally Woods Thunder Agents was an absolute revelation. It blew everybody away. It came out of nowhere. Deluxe Comics literally came out of nowhere. And Deluxe Comics was the brainchild of a man who I have never met. His name is David M. Singer. He wrote all of the forewords in the books. And and, and it's, it's, it's difficult to actually uh, ascertain a whole lot about David Singer. I, I, I don't believe he is terribly important to... What I'm going to share to you, otherwise I would give you more information about him. The bottom line is that Deluxe Comics emerged in 1984. And it brought us, as their big book that got all the eyeballs, it it, it, it was Wally Wood's Thunder Agents. Deluxe really only lasted two years. And maybe it is, you know, again, I always go back. It is, it is oh my gosh, you know, it, it is the beacon that, that, that I that that I I adhere to that guides me and it is when the doctor in Blade Runner tells Roy the the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you burn so very bright Roy maybe, maybe it was and you burns oh so very bright it was it's it's a great delivery but it sums up a lot it sums up pop careers it sums up you know fly by night trends the, the light that burns so very bright burns half as long. That wick on that candle 
sometimes goes out faster than you thought. I think that would be summed up here by Wallywood's Thunder Agents by Deluxe Comics. Deluxe Comics also had a sister company named Lodestone Comics. They went out of business in 1986. They had a two-year window. But in that two-year window, they produced some really high-end, amazing material. What is Wallywood's Thunder Agents, you ask? Well, here's the deal. If you go back to my podcast that I uh, shared with you guys back in, uh, back, uh, I think it was in February, in February, I shared with you guys a story about a falling out that Stan Lee had with one Wally Wood, Wallace Wood. Wally Wood died uh, much too young. And, and, And in his absolute heyday, he was uh, he, he was considered one of the greatest to do comic books. He, he his 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 writing, his drawing, his 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 skill as a finisher, as a penciler, as a storyteller was undeniable. So much so, and I go into great detail about it in 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 the fact that Stan Lee entered into a relationship with Wally, even though Wally was really not part of the uh, established. Marvel kind of uh, bullpen, the, the staffing, the 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 the, the talent pool, because because Wally was a strong, uh, Wally Wood was a strong personality in and of himself, but he was you know bottom line not he was known not to take a lot of gruff, but when Stanley needed him, he reached out and he extended a deal to Wally Wood to. Really reimagine, reimagine Daredevil. I cover this in depth in the November 2nd, 2021 episode, Rob Observations episode called Comic Book Feuds, Daredevil, Lee versus Wood. And uh, the, the write-up for that episode is as salty a feud as you're going to find in the history of comic books. One that spilled into public view, taking up space in the actual Marvel comic books themselves. Stan gets so angry with Wally, you'll see in this podcast... He writes things about him on the credit page, in the letters page, in the bullpens page. They had a showdown, and Stan didn't like the way it went and how it went down. And at the end of the day, you're going to see that Wally Wood lays claim. First of all, he gave Daredevil the the all-red costume. Prior to that, it was yellow and red. He gave him the the, the, the extrasensory radar sense, uh, especially the depiction of it with with those, those kind of like, you know, radar circles. Uh, the Billy Club. I mean, if you go in depth into Wally Wood and, and all of his accomplishments and, and the way that he drastically changed, you'll see guys from uh, Roy Thomas on down have, have, have lobbied for Wally to get a percentage or acknowledgement. I guess his credit isn't even on some of the Daredevil movies and television shows, and so that has really rankled these uh, Wally Wood faithful. But Wally Wood had been pursued by a book publisher called Tower Comics and Tower um, Tower Books. Tower Books wanted to start a comic book label because they had seen how the success that was going on with Marvel and DC. So you got to understand that uh, that that Tower was wanted, wanting to dip their toe into this you know into this this area of comic book publishing, and they figured who better than going you know going to Wally Wood. Wally Wood, again, I mean, guys, 
I'm 54 as I am talking to you about this. Wally Wood's life ended at 54. He died far too soon considering the, the 70s and the 80s that some of today's greats, some of our titans are, are, are extending their lives to, are living to. 54, November 2nd, 1981 is when Sir Wallace Wood left us. Now, again, he was a man of, of, of so, so much uh, acclaim and accomplishments. Uh, most people's favorite work that he ever did, actually, most people's favorite work that Jack Kirby ever did was when he was uh, being finished uh, on Sky Masters. Sky Masters of the Space Force was a strip that he finished over Jack Kirby. And it is some of the most refined, most beautiful, most lush, uh, the, 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 the ink work, the rendering, the lighting. Wally Wood was the very best in the business at, at throwing light on anything. He'd take a face, maybe you just drew a face, it didn't have any dedicated light source. He'd throw all the shadows to the right side of the face or to the left side of the face or maybe put shadows down the center of the face. He could spot, he worked that mirror, that lamp, he was exceptional with his lighting on, 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 on figures, on, on technology, on tech, on, on equipment and on, you know, as, as we've established on people, on faces. So he would also work. I mean, good God, the, the guy worked on it's, 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 uh, the, the, the signature achievement really maybe the highest profile stuff was the daredevil stuff. And he did leave abruptly and, uh, and he, he even stayed along, kind of, kind of to, to, um, did some inks after he left, but he and Stan had a massive, massive falling out. And at that point he runs and takes this offer from tower, tower books slash tower comics. And he creates the thunder agents, the thunder agents. You are not going to, uh, hear a, uh, a worse acronym than the one I'm going to throw at you. For the Thunder Agents, okay? And they even break it down to you in the first issue of Wally Wood's Thunder Agents. They break... <laughs> what does Thunder Agents stand for? I know you're dying to know this. I mean, I mean, what does Thunder Agents stand for? What do you think? So this is the age of Man from Uncle. It's James Bond is, of course, blowing up. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, you, you, you just have to understand... That this this met the moment. This that the Thunder Agents was was a concept that absolutely met the moment, being that like, well, we're going to uh, jump in on this this spy game because really the great thing about the Thunder Agents is this is their job. This wasn't a personal crisis for them. They weren't bit by a spider. They weren't bathed in radiation, whether it be in a capsule in outer space or in the desert. Uh, you know, the, the, their, their parents weren't shot like Batman and, 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 and they weren't killed in an explosion from their planet like, uh, like, like Superman's and they didn't drown like one of Aquaman's parents. So, so, so no, no parent parental tragedy. The Thunder Agents was an agency uh, and, and, and the key characters, the breakout characters, they worked there. Here it comes. You guys were waiting for it. The acronym for Thunder Agents. Get ready. It, there's, there, honestly, there's, there's no worse acronym, acronym in the history of comics. The Higher United Nations Defense Enforcement Reserves. The Higher United Nations Defense Enforcement Reserves. Not crazy about it. Feels like, feels like a stretch to make that thunder, but they did. Good for them. Okay. I, I really don't ever go around calling them the, you know, 
higher United Nations Defense Enforcement Reserves. But the Thunder Agents is a cool moniker. It's it's a cool, it's a cool logo. It, it it works in lightning on both the T and the R, and that uh, uh, maintained even with this relaunch from Deluxe Comics. So many people uh, really enjoyed uh, the 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 Thunder Agents, but alas, they just didn't last terribly long. Again, um, the, the, the series ran for 20 issues, 20 issues. It was published from uh, November, 1965 to November, 1969, but along the way it made an impact. How much of an impact? So let me share with you, Keith Giffen, who does a dedicated strip in the deluxe comics relaunch of the Thunder Agents. He writes the foreword and in the foreword, he says, like, in case you're wondering why I'm doing this, let me tell you, it's because uh, and this is so fascinating because because <laughs> nowadays, again, I, I, go, I go see the modern dentist. I, I know the modern dentist. I know the modern dentist doesn't give what the old dentists give. And it's so funny because Keith Giffen is quite a little, he's quite a bit older than myself, but we both kind of flew into this same, you know, era because he talks about he went for some dental work, but not for this dental work. He would not know who the Thunder agents were. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, so he was going to the dentist and at the end of his dentist uh, dentist appointment as a kid, just like my dentist, my mom and dad took me to a dentist at the end of every appointment, I guess, because, um, you know, I just remember it hurt a lot more than it does as an adult. That Novocaine, those shots, they took longer. You swelled up bigger because they, man, they had to make sure that they were not going to hurt your teeth more. Yes, I'm talking about the, the, the dark ages of 1975, 1976, as far as I'm concerned. It, it, it's the 60s. For, for Mr. Keith Giffen here. But uh, at the end of his dentist appointment, they asked him, do you want to pick a comic, pick a toy? You know, that like little, you know, those paddles with little rubber balls on it. And, and I'm really dating myself here, but they, I, you can still buy them. I still see them in stores, especially like the little like dollar stores, the five and dime stores, the wooden paddle. And there's a ball held, you know, stapled to it. The ball has a staple in it. The paddle has a staple in it. And there's a rubber band and you paddle it. That, that, that's one of the toys you could have gotten. Or you could or you could get a comic book. Or or you could get, um, uh, you know, if I say some of the other stuff, you're just going to be like, well, what's that? Like, like just ancient, ancient toys. Like little green army men, okay? Well, Keith Giffen got a, he got for his dental procedure, he got a comic book. And that comic book was the Thunder Agents. And, and, uh, he had never experienced the Thunder Agents comics, did not know who they were, but he knew how attracted he was to No Man, to Menthor, to Dynamo, and, <laughs> and, and to Lightning, and also the Iron Maiden. These are just five of the amazing characters that make up the visuals of the Thunder Agents. Now, some of you guys, some of you who grew up in the 90s, and, and we're going to get to this, I fly ever so briefly into this history. I mean, so briefly that it's nothing but really a, a gust of wind that's going to blow against your cheek in the history of the Thunder Agents. But when I went to check the Thunder Agents out, there it is in Wikipedia, my brief gust of wind as I flew into the Thunder Agents. But like Keith Giffen, who had not known who the Thunder Agents were prior to this, no, I did not discover the Thunder Agents through the dentist. But the, the idea that his dentist gave him gifts afterwards is like my dentist, gave, you know, and, and I, I spoke to Keith at length about this uh, at, at, at a show, uh, LA Comic Con, not, 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 not too long ago because I was so entertained by it. Because again, 
you know, and, and, and if it wasn't the dentist giving you something, your parents felt like you got a milkshake and a comic book afterwards. I mean, so, so it's it, some way or the other, you were gifted, you were, you were uh, receiving of some special, you know, uh, compensation for the pain that you just endured for getting that tooth pulled, that crown put in that those braces, whatever. So, but these characters, the Thunder Agents, they resonated so much with Keith Giffen that he was excited to contribute to Deluxe Comics' Wally Woods Thunder Agents. I have the, uh, the, the Thunder Agents, the original comics, here in front of me. I'm going to tell you, uh, I was going to wait till the end, but why not now, that DC Comics, because they fly into the Thunder Agents realm, they are, we have them to thank for this handsome volume number seven of the Thunder Agents archives. The brief period that they had it, they knew that they could get and they deserved and we should all have the five issues of the Deluxe Comics Thunder Agents collected in one handsome hardcover. And I have it and you should have it. And I'm sure after this is done, you can go and you can find it uh, either through Amazon, through eBay, whatever. But Wally Woods Thunder Agents by Deluxe Comics, these, these individual issues as well as this hardcover I have. Uh, and, and maybe when you're at the convention, you can find these. What I'm giving you today is some high-quality stuff, okay? The names I mentioned, George Perez, uh, 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 Keith Giffen, Jerry Ordway, Dave Cockrum, and and on the back of Wally Wood's vision for these characters. He created the Thunder Agents for Tower. He gave it his best shot. The original Wally Wood Thunder Agents, I have those in reprints as well. They're beautiful. They're absolutely stunning. They are of another time. They are a quieter page design. But the drawing is second to none, just like John Buscema and Jack Kirby and, and, and so many of the greats of that time. These guys were masters of the form. And you're going to see uh, inking techniques and drawing and figure work and faces that are absolutely stunning and beautiful. And that we should all always embrace and look to the past to inform our future. Absolutely, I do it. I practice that which I preach. Deluxe Comics, David Singer believes that he has a right to the Thunder Agents because he sees them as a public domain uh, option. Now, I did an entire podcast on the public domain. It was one of the best, most listened to, most shared podcasts I've ever done. I did. I, I waited until I had all the research in front of me in order to bring it to you guys. But when I did, it popped. Now, I, I there was a rumor about the Thunder Agents being in the public domain. There are some who absolutely believe they are in the public domain, but you are going to get fought on this as Deluxe Comics did, which is one of the reasons why the Thunder Agents ended after five issues. Because we are we have not yet discussed a man named John Carbonero who bought, purchased the rights to the Thunder Agents um, in, 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 the, in the late 70s, early 80s, after they had, uh, you know, after the 20 series, after the 20 issues of the Thunder Agents, you know, uh, uh, died down. And they did some spinoffs with Dynamo and No Man, okay? Uh, Wally Wood you know, obviously moved on after this. And, and yet there are many who believe that, but not for his feud with Stan Lee, we don't get Dynamo, No Man, Lightning, Menthor, Raven, Iron Maiden. I mean, it, it, this was the byproduct. It was kind of like a, 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 a bit of a an image comics move. I mean, he pivoted away. Wally did not go to DC. He did not go to, you know, he left Marvel. He didn't go over to DC. He went to a new player. That new player was ready to go. They gave him uh, uh, total control. He actually became the, uh, really the curator of all the work. So not only was he drawing and writing these stories, he was collecting the other talents that that, that would feature uh, that would be featured. And trust me, those are some, some other significant names. Uh, Gil Kane among them. Again, Deluxe really, uh, D Deluxe Comics really 
mirrored what the original Tower uh, Comics publications did by bringing together such huge names. Again, it wasn't just Wally Wood. It was Dan Adkins. It was Gil Kane. It was Steve Ditko. It was Chick Stone, big names back in the late 60s. And so with the Thunder Agents, they bring you George Perez. They bring you Dave Cockrum, Keith Giffen, Jerry Ordway. They've got writers like Steve Englehart. But here's the deal. This thing launches and the paper quality is amazing. These original issues that I'm holding in my hands right now, the paper quality is amazing. It's outstanding. It, they, they, they took it to the next level. This is 1984. This is peak George Perez. He has just done some of the most, the Judas, he, he is coming off uh, the Judas contract, which is arguably the greatest Titan storyline ever. It was acclaimed. It was best-selling. Uh, he was in the middle of drawing Crisis on the in, in Infinite Earths. And David Singer said that he is paying his talent top dollar. He made big contracts with everybody. Keith Giffen alludes in his foreword in the hardcover how well he was compensated, that this was a big money deal. That when, when, when David Singer, he knew to get these guys attention, to get Dave Cockrum to focus away from Marvel, away from the X-Men, and do Thunder Agency, and to get George Press to somehow fit this in his ridiculously busy schedule and do the quality of work that I'm going to describe to you. These these pages are stunning. They're, they're, they're unbelievably beautiful. This is top flight George Perez. This is top flight Dave, Dave Cockrum, in, in, in case you're wondering. So, so I'm not just, like, these guys did not take this money and, 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 and just grab the paycheck and slack off. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the highlight of the whole thing for me is the first issue, George Perez does a story with one of their best visual characters, the Raven. And again, you see the dichotomy there. He has a Raven in the Team Titans. So this was just a beautiful symmetry. George Perez and Dave Cockrum combined. Dave George could not finish the, the 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 inking of the book because he was sick. And Dave Cockrum steps in to ink this short page story. And in some cases, you can say, well, he did maybe more finishes uh, than 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 he did uh, inks. But regardless, it is the only time on record that Dave Cockrum inked. A story over George Perez. Two of comics' biggest names worked together, one doing the pencils, one doing the inks, in order to facilitate the completion of this story. And it is breathtakingly beautiful. It is George in his high octane. Let's see on this page one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. There are fourteen panels on this one page that I'm gawking over, and there could be sixteen or seventeen. There could be more. There's, it's comfortable. It's not squeezed. George had a unique knack of fitting so much in. On the page facing it, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's nine facing the 14. Um, this is George. This is full tilt, um, amazing quality of the highest order George Perez. And Dave Cockrum, who, as, as, as a talent in the business, had inked all manner. He's inked John Buscema. Okay. He's inked, uh, he, he's inked Bob Brown. He's inked George Tuska. Uh, he's, he's, he's inked Neil Adams, been inked himself by Neil Adams. Uh, I loved when Dave Cockrum would ink over people. He inked over, uh, all manner of super talented individuals during his, uh, stint with Marvel in DC. His, his brush and pen work were renowned. He was a absolute beautiful finisher. 
about 10 years ago, I, I was obsessed with collecting everything that he inked over everyone. And there's an issue of the Avengers. Again, he inks over uh, John B. Summit. There's an issue of Captain Marvel. He inks over Jim Starlin. Yes, Jim Thanos, Jim Infinity Gauntlet Starlin. Dave Cockrum's inks were spectacular. When he was an inker, he was one of the best top flight inkers in the business. Pure just as an inker. His finishes, his lush brush and pen work. Um, there were tiny details to be pulled out of his very thick and generous brush strokes. I mean, the guy was super talented. And the only time that these two titans of X-Men and the Titans came together is on this opening story in Thunder Agents, uh, number one, Wallywood's Thunder Agents, featuring the Raven. And uh, both George and Dave are phenomenal together. This is a mix I would love to have seen more of. This is one of those pages that if it came up on eBay, if it came up in a heritage auction, I would go bonkers to possess. I would go absolutely bonkers to get one of these amazing pages inked George Perez inked by Dave Cockrum. That's how they kick off this book. With a, you know, I mean, they, they are really strutting. George is arguably, especially this is the period where John Romita Jr. has taken over the X-Men and it is kind of a lower point for the X-Men in terms of fan interest because it went Cockrum, Byrne, Cockrum again, and then Paul Smith who blew everyone's minds and then Paul took off, made a year's worth of royalties. I've covered it on this show, took off on his motorcycle and went on a year-long kind of journey around the United States of America and he'd occasionally come into a different city do a convention during that period and he'd say hey man Paul, this is Paul Smith the excellent uh, you know penciler who, who, who blew our minds on a year's worth of X-Men stories he says hey man I just I didn't know the money was going to be so good and I've always, I just like getting on my chopper I like get on my bike and I just, I'm, just, I'm just driving across America and I'm digging it and that's how he talked he was uh, an animator and, and, and he had become a comic book penciler. He would eventually cycle back, do a whole bunch of stuff on Doctor Strange. I covered that in my dedicated Doctor Strange podcast, which was coming out right before the Mouth of Madness, uh, uh, into the Multiverse of Madness. Sorry, that I confuse it with, a, with a, another, I believe it's a John Carpenter movie called uh, The Mouth of Madness. So, so I get him confused, but it's the Doctor Strange into the Multiverse of Madness. I did, a, I did an episode and I talked about a run on Doctor Strange that is um, and unparalleled and it is by Marshall Rogers and Paul Smith and it stretches over many years and it is some of the most beautiful, uh, amazing art that you're ever going to find and you should check those books out if you haven't already or you should go listen to that podcast and get the full story. But John Romita Jr. following... Um, Paul Smith was a low point for the series. And in, in one of the Bronze Age groups that I'm in in the, in uh, on Facebook, they put up 1984, um, uh, the, what, what, uh, one of the big uh, fanzines, not fanzines, uh, comic book magazines that covered fandom called Amazing Heroes. They put up their recommendations, and X-Men was as low as it's ever been. And and we all talked. That's the John Romita Jr. era. And, and Titans, George Perez was number one. X-Men had fallen in the sales. X-Men was always a Titan to be reckoned with. But this was a period where uh, the X-Men were just hitting their marks and, 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 and Romita Jr., who is really excellent on street-level characters like Punisher, like Daredevil, uh, was, was kind of out of his element uh, drawing a team book with, that, that, that had such giant, established, iconic names associated with it. And trust me, uh, when Mark Silvestri arrived... Uh, after John left, the book uh, again exploded and became one of the most exciting comics in the market. But during that period, during that window, George had, and, and, and do I believe he would have wrestled it away regardless? Yes, I do. George was a man on a mission. He would have taken it away from Paul Smith too. I need, I need, I need to absolutely establish that. George Perez did not just get there by default. He got there by working his ass off and apparently wanted to fit in his own passion for the Thunder Agents. When I tell you about Dynamo, who gets his powers from putting on this belt, 
And when I tell you about No Man, who's got one of the most interesting powers I have ever experienced, I'm not going to tell you. I'm, I'm going to make you uh, check it out. Most everyone here has a um, a belt or a pill or a module or something or a costume that gives them their abilities as they have been empowered by this Thunder Agency. Dynamo is still, to this day, one of the most uh, unique and one of the most uh, compelling. Again, he was the fan favorite of the group, and with good reason. Uh, 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 he's just a cool-looking character. And again, uh, I, when I covered in the original, I, I've done it so many times, you'd have to go all the way back to probably the first season when I first do a dedicated ep episode on the X-Men. Colossus of the X-Men was, was supposed to be the breakout star. Marvel believed he was in the tradition of the Marvel strongman, whether it was Hulk, whether it was the Thing, they believed the strongman was always the guy that broke out and became the most popular character in the book. Colossus, also in primary colors, red, yellow, and the tint of blue on his armor, was designed, and if you'll see on the Gil Kane and the D Dave Cockrum laid out illustrated covers that really, uh, uh, you know, portray the X-Men for the first year and a half, Colossus is center stage on every cover. He was supposed to be, he was designed to be the breakout star, the, the breakout character in the X-Men. He was not. It was Wolverine. Okay? If if Dave Cockerman had, had his say, it would have been Nightcrawler. So Wolverine wasn't even in the top two choices of who they believed would carry the day. It was Colossus, then maybe Nightcrawler, and it was never expected to be Wolverine, but he was the little engine that would not be denied and broke out on his own. But Dynamo was the strong man in keeping with that thinking of Thunder Agents, and he did pop. He absolutely did pop in the biggest possible way. And he is, um, I mean, look, I was fortunate enough to, um, and this is outside of the section that I'm telling you now, I was fortunate enough to contribute to a, uh, I, I believe it was um, Thunder Agents number eight. I finally, you know, contributed to an actual published issue because Thunder Agents uh, in 2012 was published under IDW. And I did the cover to issue eight, and you'll see Dynamo is my featured character. I, I tried to fit all of them on there. Lightning, No Man, Iron Maiden, but my Thunder Agents number eight cover, it was a variant, uh, was extremely well received. If you're going to go try and find it, good luck. I hope you get it. Uh, it shouldn't be terribly expensive. It may just not be terribly, uh, uh, you know, in, in a quantity to find because those IDW books, that, 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 Series with IDW was also short-lived. The Thunder Agents, the kind of the kicker is no matter what, they just didn't translate. But that did not that does not mean that these books are not beautiful. Again, the first issue has the combo of George Perez, Dave Cockrum doing the Raven storyline. Then that is immediately followed up by Keith Giffen's Lightning story. And again, uh, uh, Keith Giffen was a force to be reckoned with. Um, and and uh, and and he he uh, there, there's pinups. By Jerry Ordway in the first issue, this 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 lightning pinup by Jerry Ordway is nothing short of stunning. It should be a poster for the character. Um, no Man by Steve Steve Ditko. Then we jump into our Keith Giffen portion of the book. I mean, these are double sized. These are two dollar comics, and he even says in the uh, in the write up, David Singer says, "Look, it's two dollars because we're giving you forty plus pages. We are giving you top flight talent, and the last story is by Dave Cockrum." pencils and inks from a Steve Englehart story, which brings all the characters together. It brings all of the characters together. There is a advertisement that faces this splash page of the final uh, 20 plus page story that Dave Cockrum does 
uh, with Steve Englehart, which brings the entire you know team together. And that's what we like. We like seeing the team together because I loved seeing them together. Often they were all kind of in disparate solo stories. An average Thunder agents issue did not guarantee that you would get all the agents under one roof in one adventure. But here they end it with Raven, No Man, Lightning, Dynamo all powered together against their bat, their, their villain Psychosis. And uh, but facing it is an ad for posters. Deluxe Comics wanted you to buy George Perez's. Uh, Iron Maiden, his uh, 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 poster of Menthor, a, a Dave Cockrum Thunder Agents team, a really good team shot. Dave, Dave crushed it. He, this, this is just fantastic. But um, the the Keith Giffen story, I, I again for those of you who may go, hey Rob, I got this. It's not lightning. You're right. It's Menthor. His first issue is Menthor. There is also a Gray a Gray Morrow, an artist named Gray Morrow, did a pinup of Iron Maiden and Pat Broderick who was tearing it up, doing Firestorm at the time, and he had done Micronauts for Marvel. He does a Dynamo pinup. This first issue is just gorgeous. The back cover previews, then the next issue's cover that George Perez did, he did all the covers for the first uh, four issues, and they're stunning. They're just nothing short of stunning. This is George flexing, bringing his best self. Issue two, uh, we get another... uh, uh, George Perez Raven story. This time it's inked by Bill Ray, but it is no less uh, stunning and it is no less impressive. It's just that first one is inked by Dave Crockham. Again, when legends combine, so many of you guys love when I worked with Todd McFarlane when he inked my pencils on the New Mutants uh, covers. And and again, part of one of the reasons you liked it is two of your favorite guys were, were it was it was it was peanut butter and chocolate. We were a Reese's peanut butter cup. I'll take a peanut butter cup over a Hershey's you know candy bar or a, or a jar of peanut butter any day. So that peanut butter cup effect, that's Dave Cockrum, Inc. and George Perez to my generation. It's 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 beautiful. And and if you look at it, you'll you'll see that it's beautiful too. It's great great art stands the test of time. Always comes through in a pinch. Raven by George Perez is the is the opening of the second issue. Then we pivot now to the Keith Giffen lightning story. And then we go out of that into a unbelievable George Perez Iron Maiden pinup. And then we're back to the Thunder Agents by Dave Kirkram, Dave Cockrum, the uh the the full uh team in, in one adventure together. And and it is nothing short, sort of just amazing. If you were a fan of these characters as I was. And they never looked more modern and more relevant than they did, as illustrated by George Perez, Dave Cockrum, Keith Giffen, and Jerry Ordway. Issue three is uh, George takes the issue off because it says that he is behind on his deadlines in crisis. So it kicks off with a Dave Cockrum uh, uh, Thunder Agents feature. Again, killer splash pages, storytelling, just could not love this stuff more. You get another uh, Keith Giffen story because Keith is coming to play another lightning story that is outstanding. And then we end with Steve Ditko of the original Thunder Agents contributors. Again, the, the, the creator of Spider-Man, Doctor Strange over at Marvel, does a no-man story to end this one off. And then Jerry, Jerry Ordway arrives to do the team section of, uh, of the next issue. George Perez finishes off his Raven as advertised, as promised. Um, and, and, and the books... These were these were books that we never missed. Me and my and my and my friends. These were dedicated, uh, never misses for us because of the talent that was bringing them to you. This talent is 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 superb. Uh, again, I'm just going to keep hitting it again and again and again and again. When 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 you get a book in 1985 
that has a George Perez cover. And again, here, here, George's final Raven chapter. Again, I'm one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven panels, and it and it's comfy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Two eleven-page panels, and it works. It's great. The gestures are fantastic. The figure work, the faces. George brought his very best self. Dave Cockrum bought his brought his very best self. Jerry Ordway, Keith Giffen, they brought their very best talents to bear on Wally Woods Thunder Agents by Deluxe Comics. You should check them out. The reason it did not go forth is the man John Carbonaro, who I said about 20 minutes ago, got the license in the late 80s to do the Thunder Agents. He picked it up from Tower Records. <laughs> not Tower Records. It wouldn't be a Rob Observations if I didn't do some awesome flubbity flub. The Tower Comics, uh, Carbonaro comes in. He scoops up the license and starts making the rounds with it. And I see in an ad in 1981 that he is doing the Thunder Agents. And it's got this beautiful painted Mark Texiara. Yes, the Ghost Rider, uh, uh, the, the very excellent Ghost Rider artist that you know primarily from his killer 90s Ghost Rider. He did a beautiful painted um cover for the thunder agents and it was you know being advertised in in, in like comics journal and amazing heroes all these different comic book, uh fan publications that i'm telling you about and i was like oh my gosh the thunder agents i've seen these you know at that point in reprints at the wally wood stuff the gil kane stuff and he said i'm bringing them back the thunder agents were going to be uh published under jc comics john carbonero comics okay he published two issues then they wrapped up all those storylines a couple years later through Archie Comics. So we got Tower Comics, we got JC, John Carbonero Comics, and we got Archie Comics involved in the Thunder Agents in their first three iterations. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, the uh, he, he licenses them to Texas Comics, who teams up the Thunder Agents with the Justice Machine. You never heard of this, but there is a killer Michael Golden uh, cover on this bad boy. And you should check that out. Uh, Bill Reinhold did the, did the inside. It's, it's extremely attractive. The Thunder Agents, we get to see him again. This is now 1983, but it was in 1984 again that David Singer announced he believed he had obtained the right to these characters through them being available in the public domain. John Carbonaro said, they're not available in the public domain. They're my characters. I bought them. I purchased them. I am going to bring them, uh, to light. And uh, Carbonaro sues David Singer, sues Deluxe Comics, and he wins his lawsuit. He uh, Deluxe Comics is ruled to owe John Carbonaro an undisclosed sum of money, and Deluxe Comics closed its doors under the auspices that they weren't being paid by uh, distributors. When I really believe what happened is it's this lost uh, lawsuit. Carbonaro uh, made his case known. He took it to the U.S. District Court and they acknowledged his registered trademarks and trademark uh, uh, and copyrights and Deluxe Comics had to honor those and shut the doors. So where do I come in? Well, there's at least a couple more passes before I come in here, but uh, Solson Publications, which was largely a black and white comic book company, they did one issue of a comic called Thunder. It was supposed to be a four-issue series, but it was over before it began. That was 1987. In the mid-1990s, John Carbonero contacted me. He asked me if I would be interested in doing the Thunder Agents. I had said some positive, you know, uh, uh, bucket list comment about them, and he contacted me, and we talked, and he had his lawyers draw papers, and based on that, I was ready to go. I drew up uh, several different illustration pieces for the Thunder Agents. We put them to solicitations through Diamond, 
in order to get the comic to you and get it ordered. And I was assembling all manner of killer talents. And again, uh, one Google search away, uh, if you do Rob Liefeld uh, Thunder Agents, you're going to see that ad. You're going to see, uh, you're going to see exactly what was being solicited. But here's the deal: right before we go to um, actually consummating this deal, because it's Jim Valentino. When I called him, I said, "Jim, I got this." Jim's like, "I love it. I love the Thunder. I've got so many stories for him." Just like Keith Giffen, just like me, we love the Thunder Agents. We love Domino, No Man, all of them. He goes, I'd love to do this. I'd love to write the stories. I'm like, you're in. So I got Jim Valentino. I got myself. Stephen Platt was going to contribute covers. Chap Yap, Dan Frega. We were coming. One of the most critically acclaimed comic book series of all time is back. The all new, all different Thunder Agents. I was in. I was going to do this until I wasn't. John Carbonaro just said, I changed my mind. It wasn't angry. He just said, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. And that's when I learned why the Thunder Agents had been flying in and out of so many different um, orbits whether it was Archie Comics briefly or Solson Publications briefly, or as you're about to see, you know, the 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 uh, the brief uh, uh, dance that they did with DC Comics. Now, Carbonaro contacts DC Comics early in the 2000s. They believe they have a deal. They plan to release a brand new Thunder Agents. They had worked up a license under Carbonaro. They had done two issues worth of work, and Carbonaro immediately told them he didn't want to do this anymore. He wanted changes made, and if they didn't make them, he was pulling it, and he's pulling it regardless, and that iteration died. And sadly, John Carbonaro would also pass away. He died in 2009. A deal was quickly struck with whoever was representing John Carbonaro, and DC eventually came out with a Nick Spencer written, uh, illustrated by the artist Cafu, yes, C-A-F-U, Cafu. And it came out in 2010. It had a Frank Quietly cover on it. I'm looking at it right now. It is super cool. I, of course, I bought it. I, I'm a Thunder Agents, you know, I'm a Thunder Agents guy. So, so it was uh, in 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 no short order that the Thunder Agents had finally reappeared again after so many years, uh, and after a failed attempt with DC in the early 2000s. It took another 10 years for them to come out. During this crucial period. DC issues all of these hardcovers. Volume 7, Thunder Agents Archives. You are, I, I'm telling you, this thing is a gem. I don't know what you're going to pay for it. I paid uh, from my dealer when he had it. What was this? This was, uh, this was sold for 60 bucks, 59.99. Okay, this is what, it's a handsome, handsome collection. It says right here, from the modern age of comics, the first revival of the classic superhero team, Wally Woods, Thunder Agents, one through five, featuring the work of George Perez, Dave Cockrum, Keith Giffen, Steve Ditko, Jerry Ordway, Paul Galassi, Rich Buckler, and many, many more of comics' finest talents. This is just nothing short of spectacular. It is one of the best hardcovers I possess. Anytime you flip it open and any, and, and like your finger can land on a Jerry Ordway page, a uh, Dave Cockrum page, a Dave Cockrum inking George Perez page, a George Perez page, uh, a Keith Giffen page, uh, like I said, Paul Galassi, just amazing. The Thunder Agents. Maybe you never heard of them. But now, now you have heard of the all-important Thunder Agents. And don't forget that acronym. Let's not leave that acronym out. Because if you're not saying it super fast, then why are you even saying it at all? Together now, the higher United Nations Defense Enforcement Reserves. Honestly, 
It's grown on me during this podcast. It, that took a lot of work to fit that into making Thunder Agents. But Deluxe Comics Thunder Agents brought together the biggest stars of stage and screen uh, and, and produced these amazing comics that were on the nicest paper you could possibly imagine. Marvel and DC were not printing on this quality of paper. The colors, the printing, the cover stock, the, the talent, um, the commitment by these guys. Again, you've got to a, a random fan in the Bronze Age in the middle of the 80s, in 1984 to 1985, George Perez did this during his peak on Titans, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, Dave Cockrum uh, was pulled away from the X-Men to do this at his peak. You are looking at the biggest stars of, of, of comics, of making comics. Perez, Cockrum, Giffen, Ordway. I'm going to keep saying that because this is like an image comics collection of talent. This is like getting Todd, Rob, and Jim in the day to do like a, a, a monthly series where we're all doing uh, stories. This was a mind-blowing... I mean, I remember when I first thought, saw the ad, I'm like, is this real? Is this going to happen? Or is it going to be like one of these other Thunder Agents things that doesn't happen? Hey, these five issues, this hundred plus pages, I mean, it's enough to fit a handsome uh, uh, hardcover. Uh, that, that again, you should be you should be grabbing. This popped. These comics popped when they appeared. When they would come out, it was on a real good bi-monthly schedule. They kept them their marks. They they hit it. 1984 through 1985, and then over. Obviously, John Carbonaro uh, won, winning his lawsuit was enough to snuff the life out of this particular revival. And I have to imagine, given that he was attracting the top talents that he was, David Singer was sparing no expense. Just like Jurassic Park, he was sparing no expense in bringing all of these amazing talents together. But once you lose the suit that says you don't have a right to these characters, you kind of, you know, the doors are shuttered and it goes to the annals of history. Um, and, and eventually, again, because DC Comics got that license for that brief, brief period of time from uh, 2010 to 2012, we got these killer hardcovers. You can get the Wallywood stuff. It's all available in these great formats, and you should check it out because I am here to recommend stuff that I think that you will think is cool and stuff that rocked the industry and took it by storm, even if it was for a brief period. These characters are fantastic. Again, Dynamo, Raven, No Man are kind of the standouts, but no no less so than Lightning. Anyway, uh, I had a blast drawing them on one cover, on one single solitary cover. I, I, I'm going to make sure because so many of you guys, you you then show me that you go out and you get this, um, you you get these comics. I don't want to be leading you astray. I know you can um, you can uh, Google this yourself, uh, but 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 I'm I'm, I'm going to try and make sure that I'm giving you the best possible uh, recommendation. It does say here that this is from IDW when they got the license in 2012. When I got the call from Chris Ryle to do this, I was so excited. Thunder Agents number eight. I did a variant, and 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 oh. I would love to do more with these characters. Uh, I love the Thunder Agents. I love talking about them today. It got me super excited. I figured on my first one back, we would talk about not just the future of entertainment and pop and movies and what is a movie and what is a film, but what is some kick-ass comic book work that we have not yet discussed and I could possibly steer you towards. And if not, if these aren't comics you want to you know, partake in, just know that there was a period in the history of comics publishing in the mighty Bronze Age where the top names went to do independent work uh, for and and and, and, and we got to five full issues over a hundred plus pages of amazing storytelling comics characters and uh, after IDW did their run I, I believe if I'm correct the Thunder agents have been dormant uh, until until such time as we see them again but I hope that you hey if this makes you go 
back and check out the Wallywood stuff. And some of you guys are completely like, no, I'm getting those JC comics too. Hey, I have that magazine size Thunder Agents. It's pretty cool. Um, the, 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 the John Carbonero comics for one brief shining period. I thought, oh my gosh, it's, it's my new favorite publisher. Uh, again, because the appeal of the characters, they're really cool looking. Good color schemes, good names, good powers. And again, it's their job. They're spies. This was like Super James Bond. That's what the Thunder Agents is. And they went up against other rogue, uh, uh, you know, mercenaries and, and rival agencies. And again, they had their own brand of cool supervillains. And I think you totally dig this stuff. So that uh, is how we bring the thunder on today's Rob Observations. You guys know that at the end of every Rob Observation episode, I read your generous reviews that you leave across all the platforms. You guys have been so so damn good to me. You are so kind and, 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 and you, um, just say the nicest things about this show. And I am always so pleased that I can bring them to you today. I am going to share with you a review, uh, <clears throat> that was posted not too long ago, uh, by a gentleman named Wyatt, Wyatt Frantum. Today I'm reading from Wyatt Frantum. He gave us five stars. He says, Revisited Youth. He says, Before Rob was a comic book legend, igniting the imaginations of millions of fans, he too was a comic book fan, and more than that, an apt student of the art form. Now, through his own personal journey and love affair with the medium, Rob is a mentor for and a historian of the comics industry, tracking its evolution, posting its present pop culture status, and forecasting its inevitable, ubiquitous nature. Sitting in a room with Rob's observations twice per week and tapping the vein of Rob's passion vicariously is so like revisiting one's youth. That school bell ringing weekly, convoy of friends on bikes racing towards Friday's comic book shop drop. With a humanity, candor, and humor all his own, Rob, with the Rob's Observation podcast, is further cementing his place in the annals of the comic book industry. Wyatt Frantum, architect, comma, designer. Hey man, how many architect, comma, designers are leaving you a review today? Wyatt, you touched me deep. You touched me deep. This is so generous, so kind. I am so glad that this stokes your excitement. I get excited looking on my desk right now. I'm looking over, you know, all of the individual issues, issue two, three, four, uh, uh, issue one and, and the hardcover of, of, of the Wallywood Thunder agents. And, and, and I am remembering, uh, because I was 18 years old. I was still a teenager in 1985 when these were coming out. And I, in 1984, I was 17. And so this was peak kind of my, 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 my engagement level that I was still in for that really super strong, uh, decade of seven to 17, eight to 18, just really just, just my favorite period of collecting comics, the strength of the bronze age. And I am so thankful that you guys appreciate when I break this down and I share this stuff with you guys it comes from the heart. It's what's on my mind. I always share with you guys what's on my mind. Thank you. When you leave your review, like Wyatt did. Uh, a, a, an architect, comma designer. Okay, look, I'm I'm walking a little taller today. That that's a, that, that's a, that's a nice little moniker to have after one's name. Architect, designer. Wyatt leaves me this very generous review. I do the same as I did with him today. I read your review at the end of every show. Whenever you leave a review on the Apple plat platform or on any of the other platforms that we collect our reviews from, I will read them at the end of every show. Thank you for sharing this with me. I am all over social media. I am. Um, on Twitter at Robert Liefeld, the first, the full name. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld with the blue check. Okay, both have blue checks to tell you they're really me, and it's not a fake version of me asking you to donate to some weirdo cause. 
because um, trust me, that is happening more often than you ever possibly can imagine. But the blue check is supposed to separate and say, no, this is the real guy, not the imposter. I am the real guy, not the imposter. I'm all over Facebook. I have a dedicated uh, page called Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. It is moderated by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala. So if you go on and see some of the different Rob Liefeld groups on Facebook, this is the only one that is moderated, administrated, administered by myself. And again, you'll see Terry. So you'll know that's really us. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. We're getting new new members um, all the time. We, we just um, share so much of uh, what what I have been involved in and what I've done in my career because I've crossed over to almost almost every publisher almost every character So there's a lot to cover. We invite you to join that group. We love to hang out with you this page Rob Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld has a dedicated fan page. Uh, give it a like give it a comment. I'll find it. I'll find you um, I will respond to you. Thank you so much you guys for spending this time with me. We went big today We went two hours in this return uh, I had a lot on my mind. It was a great time off. Thank you for sharing all of your enthusiasm with me. This is Comic-Con week. I am headed to San Diego Comic-Con on Friday at 11 a.m. in room 7AB, I believe. Room 7AB, I am having a Rob Observations panel. 300, the first 300 people, um, we only have 300 copies, uh, is a profit number one. Uh, covered by Dave Finch and myself. I inked over Dave Finch, this amazing illustration that he did of John Prophet. And I put my Rob Observations logo on that. It has a red background with a lightning bolt, which is different than the dedicated uh, Dave Finch, Rob Liefeld, Prophet number one cover that's coming to your comic store. You can only get this by showing up. You don't buy it. It is given to you free if you are one of the 300 people that attend the Rob Observations podcast uh, panel at 11 a.m. Friday in room 7AB. I hope to see you there. Guys, it's, 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 nothing's changed. I still need you right now to take care of yourself. We are still not out of this crazy period of this world that we're in, and you need to relax, um, get, get a, get a good vacation. Maybe it's a staycation. Maybe it's with your comic books and, and a Twinkie and, and, and a bag of Doritos and a great soda. What's your favorite soda? Uh, I, I love Cactus Cooler. Yes, I do. Man, is that a good soda? Holy crap. Loved it since I was a kid. Uh, maybe you're kicking back. Maybe it's an idea of a great steak at a steakhouse. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, great Italian meal at, at, at Frank Coley's. I mean, wherever it is, whatever you're doing, relax, kick back, get you time, get you time. Enjoy a great movie. Enjoy a great date night. Some, some time with friends. I don't know. Maybe you're going to the yard and you're playing basketball like my kid is getting the fellas together and going to the park and playing, you know, like we did when we were older till, till, till the lights go out. I mean, what a blast. It's summer. Take care of yourself. Your mental, emotional, physical, uh, being is, 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 uh, is the most important. Those are the four areas, spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, that we got to feed all the time. Keep ourselves on the straight and narrow. What a crazy bunch of years. But this year I, I thought back and because of the pandemic, I started a podcast, so I will always have something decent that came out of this in a really terrible, awful time that saw all of us suffer in terrible ways. But I am so thankful that I can share uh, this time with you and and share and, and that you share your time with me. So I'm back. Uh, uh, swing back around again. Just come back. I'll be here at the cul-de-sac. I'm waiting and ready to go. And we are going to talk again real soon. 